day that which we live now, peace is on everybody's mind. Peace and prosperity. Can we still have it? Can we still maintain it? There's been a lot of strife across our country for a lot of reasons, a lot of turmoil. And I, my heart goes out to those on the front lines, such as John and such as Marquez and others who serve in uh, the capacity of the National Guard and military and our police officers and our law enforcement officials of what all they are doing to try to keep the populace safe and secure in the best way possible. And all of us have that on our minds. My dad lived through, as many of you did, the turmoil of the late 1960s. I was a little bit too young to remember all of the details, but I do remember him telling me as I was growing up, son, I hope that you never have to go through a period of time like we went through then. Well, here we are. And peace is on everyone's mind. How can we attain it? How can we achieve it? How can we maintain it? Well, for some common misconceptions we need to clear up at first about peace and prosperity. It is not wrong for Christians to prosper. And it's not wrong for us to desire prosperity. The Apostle John wrote in 3 John verse 2 for Gaius, and his prayer was that he prosper. He wanted his soul to prosper even as he prospers. It's not wrong to desire it as long as we do not jeopardize our soul in so doing. It's not wrong to desire it and to have prosperity in this life. In Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, the wise man gives us a warning that we must be cautious in desiring prosperity because it might lead one to feel that you don't need God anymore. And isn't that what Moses told the Israelites through inspiration as he stood there on the bank of the river Jordan as they were going to cross into Canaan, Moses knowing he couldn't cross in with them. He told them, this is what you will have if you follow the Lord's will, if you follow all of his commands. You will be prosperous. You will prosper in everything that you do. It's not wrong to desire prosperity. But secondly, happiness, peace, and prosperity are not usually evaluated properly by this old world. We've all lived long enough where we've seen that, haven't we? The world has been led to believe that the good life is impossible without self-centered, sensual pleasures leading us. All you got to do is watch TV. And I don't recommend watching a lot of television. But if you watch television to any extent, you'll notice commercials that air. And the commercials that air will imply that all of the world's losers are not drinking the right beverages, using the right toothpaste, driving the right cars, and of course the wardrobe has got to be as lavish as possible. Some of us who remember, remember the lifestyles of the rich and famous, how it would laud all of those that are at the very top of the line with monetary concerns and not giving a care at all a thought for their soul's well-being. Ecclesiastes 2 and again Ecclesiastes 12, we know that King Solomon learned better. He learned the hard way, unfortunately. He tried to live the good life as the world would have him believe he should live. And as a result, he warned us about it. He had gone through all of what the world had to offer him. Education, money, sex, strong drink, and the like. 
And he said at the end of all of that search, it is all vanity and a striving for wind. It's vanity and a vexation of spirit. And there's nothing profitable under the sun in all of this. But then he tells us at the end of that book that God will bring everything into judgment, including every secret thing. We will stand before God. He said, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Those who live in pleasure, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, 6, are dead while they live. But a third misconception that we need to look at is that faithful service to God does not automatically withhold prosperity. Too many in our day seem to think that it's impossible to be happy, it's impossible to be prosperous, and to be a Christian. As if God holds them back from achieving great honor, similar to what Balaam experienced in Numbers 24.11. Balaam's ambitions were misdirected. A few examples show us how service to God and the right kind of prosperity are compatible. Deuteronomy chapter 24, for example, the old servant who searched for Isaac's wife, we recognize him as an evidence of God's prosperity every step of the way. In Daniel 6, 25-28, Daniel declares that he himself was at no disadvantage during and after the trials that he underwent. He was happy. He was prosperous. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul commands Christians to give of their means. And Christians are to regard their prosperity as having come from God. And use it as an opportunity. An opportunity to use it in service for His cause. So now that we've cleared up those misconceptions, I want us to look at the passage that was read a few minutes ago in your hearing. Psalms 122. This, I believe, is an ancient recipe for peace and for prosperity. In verse 1 of the text, it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. There must be a spirit for peace to really be achieved. There must be a spirit of glad, eager anticipation of worship. God's house today, according to 1 Timothy 3.15, is His church. No one can prosper in an honorable way who leaves the worship of God out of his life. And I understand we are in very strange times. And we have done the best that we can, as well as many other brethren across the country, and yet, yes, across the world, around the world, in dealing with these times and worshiping God the best way we possibly can. And our elders are to be commended for the job that they have done in leading the way in this. And I think they are doing a fantastic job uh, service for us in, in uh, making sure that we have a safe place in which to worship and that we have a regular time in which we worship during these times. Most congregations receive dozens of calls a year about benevolent help for needy families. That's a given. That is a, a, a regular thing that takes place. But how many people do you recall coming from families who were regular attendants at worship services? Not nearly as many. The needy faithful would never have to ask. As the Bible says, the way of the transgressor is hard. So when we determine within ourselves that nothing is going to keep us from worshiping God, that I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. When we have that disposition, that is a major step forward 
in having true peace. But verse 2, true peace and prosperity also require taking a stand for God. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. You know, with God, there is a difference between an insider and an outsider. It's not enough to simply lean that way in the direction of God. A person is expected to make a full commitment to serve God in his way and in his designated place. In Matthew twelve thirty, Jesus puts it this way. He that is not with me is against me. Will God prosper a person who is against him? The answer is obvious. If we really want true peace and we really desire true prosperity, we are going to stand with God at all times. Jerusalem is often a term that's used in a way in the New Testament to refer to the church. That's the way the Hebrews writer puts it in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. The new Jerusalem. That's what we are a part of. The question that we need to ask ourselves is a simple one. Are you inside the gates of the city? Are you inside the gates of the church, as it were? We need to determine whether or not we are within that ark of safety. The place where God designates salvation and the blood of Christ to flow. But then verse 3. Unity is a prerequisite to peace and to prosperity. The Bible says in this passage, Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Compact together, united. A divided house cannot stand. A divided church cannot prosper. You know, it's a sad thing indeed that people often will drive 50 miles further to avoid attending a strife-torn congregation. That's always a sad thing indeed. We've got to get along with other people. We must get along with other people in order to achieve peace. Do we really make an effort to do that? Do we try to get along with each other? Christians are to be workers together with God. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. And Ephesians 2, 21 and 22 emphasize the same thing. We are workers together with God. We are workers together with every child of God in His church. We need to determine that we are going to be truly united. United together. And not fractured and not divided from one another. But then verse 4 of our text, Psalm 122, tells us that peace and prosperity are linked to gratitude, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. Give thanks. Someone has well said, no one has ever prospered by forgetting to thank those who helped him along the way. Do we give thanks to God enough? Do we give thanks for all his manifold blessings? Do we truly give thanks for our health? For what we possess, we are blessed beyond imaginable in this country. Still, when you compare us to the rest of the world, as far as physical blessings, it's unreal. 
My mom and dad became good friends with a couple of members of the church from Scotland back in the late 1970s when daddy took missionary trips to Scotland, then the second trip with my mother. And this couple came back to visit us during Christmas holiday in 1978. And the husband said, you know, all of you Americans are millionaires. Of course, we laughed about that because obviously we aren't. He said, no, all of you are rich. All of you are rich. You have, a, you have two cars in your carport. You have a refrigerator inside your house. You have televisions. You have clothes. You're rich. Compared to the way the average Scott lived back in the late 1970s, it really was a rich lifestyle that he was looking at. But you compare the majority of the world's population and their standard of living to us. We have a lot to be thankful for. And in so doing, we need to give back. We need to make sure that we give back and that we do acknowledge what God has given to us. Even we do not continue giving handouts to those who are ungrateful. Why should God? If God has blessed us beyond measure, beyond imagination, and yet we never give thanks to Him, how long do you think those blessings are going to last? Not that long. If we're really going to be truly peace at peace and truly prosperous, we need to give thanks, be gracious, and have gratitude for all that we have. But continuing on in our text in Psalm 122 at verse 5, Peace and prosperity require a respect for standards of authority. There are set thrones of judgment, the Bible reads. Standards for what is right and for what is wrong must be set. They cannot be devised by each person according to his or her circumstances. Tried and proven standards of decency must not be flippantly discarded. What about the Bible? Is the Bible our source of authority, our only source of authority for all things religious and all things moral? What about the sacredness of marriage? The sacredness of marriage seems to be out the window among so many in the flippant way in which they enter in and then leave marriages. What about the church? What about standard of authority for the church? The Lord's church is described clearly in the New Testament. It is undenominational. It is one. It was built by Christ. It is not a denomination. And yet so many in our day and time, sadly, some with even, well, that are members of the church, have a flippant view, it seems about the nature of the body of Christ. What about law and order? Law and order is very important. If we do not have standards of law and order, society devolves into chaos. And that's what we're seeing in too many areas. A lack of respect for those who are in authority. What about respect for those who are aged? Those who are infirm? Those who are elderly? How a society treats its senior citizens says a lot about the character and the nature of that society. What about our respect for human life? It is my conviction, because I certainly believe the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the New Testament teach it, that life begins at conception. 
and that abortion is not acceptable in the sight of God. We know that the prophet Isaiah was uh, talking about the sacredness of life. We know that he described it in Isaiah 7 when he foretold that the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a child. Matthew quotes that directly in Matthew 1.22. The virgin shall conceive and bear a child, a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He was a human life when he was first conceived to the time he was born. And that's the way we need to look at it. Human life is sacred. But not only unborn life, all life is sacred in the sense that all life is precious in the sight of God. No matter how old we are, no matter who we are, no matter where we live, we need to count human life as precious and sacred. This goes back to standards. Standards that must be upheld. Standards that must be recognized. And the one standard that we must go by beyond all others is God's Word. God's Word provides us the standard of authority in everything we do. And if we set that standard of authority aside, then God is not going to be pleased with us. And we may cry, peace, peace, where there is no peace. We may think we have peace and prosperity, whereas God looks at it quite differently. We need to be guided by God's will and not our own. But then, moving on into verse 6 of our text, we find that peace and prosperity come as the result of prayer and love. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Prosperity is related to prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, Give us this day our daily bread, Matthew six eleven. But as Brother Gus Nichols would often point out, the Bible also tells us to go out and work for it. Work for what you have. So we must pray for our daily bread and to go out and earn that daily bread. That's how we become truly prosperous in God's sight. But peace also results from prayer. Do you want this nation to be at peace? When was the last time you prayed for it? When was the last time you prayed for our leaders in county? city, state, and federal government. We must pray for those in authority. You know, Paul said that we must obey those who are in rule over us. And the person who was on Caesar's throne was Nero. Peter said, honor the king. And the king was Nero. We must pray for those in high office that they may make laws that respect our freedoms, that we may worship freely and acceptably in the sight of God. But then if the time comes where we must obey God rather than men, then so be it. If those in authority try to, do us, try to make us do things that are against the Word of God, then there's no choice. But we must pray for those who are in positions of authority that we might enjoy the peace that we have as a country. Verse 7 of our text also tells us that the secret of peace and prosperity lies within, not without. Peace be within thy walls 
and prosperity within thy palaces. We all need to resist the ever-present temptation to blame other people for our circumstances. It's always a temptation that's there. You know, I would be happy if I were young again. Really? Are you really sure about that? I would be really happy if I had a million dollars. Well, sounds good, but you really certain that that would be the case? I would really be happy if I had the talents and abilities of brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. We always have a tendency to look at the other person for happiness. To some, happiness is always around the corner. It's always down the road and they never look at themselves for the solution. Abraham Lincoln once said, most people are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. And that's true. You make up your mind every time that you wake up in the morning what direction that day is going to go. Are you determined when you wake up in the morning that your day is going to go well? Or are you determined that your day is not going to go well? You've got to make that decision. By the time you put your feet down on the floor off of your bed, you've made some decisions already. Are you going to be happy in spite of your circumstances? Or are you going to be miserable and make other people miserable as a result? Inner peace, true peace within, comes from within us. It comes as a result of following the will of God, doing what the Lord wants us to do, and not going against it, and living at peace with all people as, more, as much as we possibly can. But at the end of the day, our own peace is going to come from within have we determined to do that? And then finally, in verses 8 and 9, peace and prosperity require right relationships with others. The text reads in part, For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will seek thy good. No one is more miserable than the person who is self-centered. You ever thought about that? Someone who is self-centered is one of the most miserable people you'll ever meet in your life. Luke chapter 12, Jesus describes about the rich fool. Remember? He had an eye problem. He was saying, I, 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 me, my. What's interesting is that Greek word I comes from the word ego. He had an ego problem, literally, in what he was saying. He had a self-centeredness problem. And he was not truly happy. He thought he was, but he wanted more and more and more. And the Lord told him, thou fool, this night your soul is required of you. Do we consider truly how we can help other people? Really help other people? As a husband, have I considered how I can best treat and help my wife? As a wife, have I considered how I can best help and treat my husband? That's what he, Ephesians 5, 28-33 describes. It's a mutual relationship. We benefit one another. We are in submission to one another as human beings. And then, of course, the wife is to be in submission to the husband as far as the authority structure in the family is concerned. But we help one another. We elevate one another by helping each other in our marriages. Do we ever consider as members of the congregation helping the elders? 
when they ask for our help, do we consider how we can best help and assist them? Do we consider going the extra mile to help them in their important work of shepherding the flock? You know, elders have the most monumental role of anyone in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Even more so than the president, even more so than rulers of nations. Because they are, in effect, the governors over God's people. Governors. Think about it from that perspective. A governor. What a governor has upon himself. And elders are a group of governors, as it will, that are leading the flock in an executive way. But they depend upon the flock to help. They depend upon each member to give assistance. Do we truly give assistance or are we thankful? What about the needy? Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all, especially those who are the household of faith. Do we consider ways that we can help? That we can truly be of assistance to those who are in need? What I'm asking is, are we considering the good that we can do for other people? You've heard of the principle, pay it forward, right? Well, that's simply a good principle to follow, to have good relationships with our fellow citizens. But you know, the Lord had set that forth before us long before that principle was ever articulated in this country. We are to pay it forward to each one who's a member of the body of Christ. It doesn't hurt to give a smile to someone. It doesn't hurt to give a compliment to someone who is in need of that compliment. It doesn't hurt to lift up someone instead of bring them down. The little things we can do, the little things that we can say, will go a long way toward true peace within the body of Christ and true unity and prosperity. The good that we do for other people rebounds with joy and rebounds with blessing to us. That's what Paul stresses in 2 Corinthians 9. Do we look for the best in others? Do we look how we can help those who need our help? How that we can help the body of Christ become stronger, become better, become more prosperous? If we do, then guess what? We're going to have true peace. In the midst of the storm. You know, I think about Jesus when he was on the boat with his disciples and the great storm rose up on the Sea of Galilee and they were looking for the Lord and they couldn't find him. They looked down into the well of the ship inside the body of that ship and where do they find him? He is fast asleep on the bed. You know, you ever met anybody that could sleep through anything? I had that reputation when I was singing in the Sunshine Singers of Freed Hardeman. I could sleep through a lot of noise on the tour bus. When everything was quiet, I'd be wide awake. But when we were coming close to our destination, everybody was up and around talking, I'd be dead asleep. I could sleep through just about anything. The Lord was like that. He slept through that violent storm because He was at peace and He wanted His disciples to be at peace. So what does he say when he comes up to the top of that ship to the wind and the waves? Peace. Be still. That's what he's saying to us today. Peace. Be still. In spite of what's happening in our world, in spite of what might be happening in your life, we need to heed our Lord's call. Peace. Be still. We can truly be at peace if we do the will of the Lord. And the question that remains this morning is, have you done that? 
Are you a child of God the way the New Testament describes? The Bible is clear about how one becomes a Christian. He believes in, the, in Jesus as God's Son, John 3, 16. Turns from sin in repentance, Luke 13, 3 and 5. Confesses his faith in Christ as the risen Lord, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then is immersed into Christ, Galatians 3, 27. And in that moment, his sins are forgiven, Acts 2, 38. If you're not a child of God, you can obey the Lord this morning. If you are a child of God, however, and your life has not been in keeping as it should be with the Lord's will, your life has not been at peace. You've truly not been prosperous spiritually. And it's affected your relationship with God, and it's affected your relationship with others. You can make it right this morning. You can make a turn toward true peace. A coming forward, a confessing that you've, wrong, you've done wrong. And that you want the forgiveness of God on your behalf. And pray to God that you might be forgiven. This song is going to be sung in just a moment as a means to encourage those who may need to respond to the Lord's invitation. And if you need to come, we ask you to do so now while we stand and while we sing.